Hello, and welcome to The Correspondent, a podcast brought to you by the Foreign Correspondents Club here in Hong Kong. My name is Taylor Rabana. I am one of the Claire Hollingsworth Fellows here at the FCC, and I'm very happy to be here. You're about to hear our lunchtime talk with author Louisa Lim, who wrote The Indelible City, Dispossession, and Defiance in Hong Kong. It was originally posted on the FCC's YouTube channel, and we're going to play it here for you again. We've edited this for the best listening experience. Please enjoy author Louisa Lim. Um, our guest tonight, I'm sure to many of our audience, needs absolutely no introduction. Louisa Lim is a longtime Hong Konger and an esteemed journalist who's reported on China and Hong Kong for over a decade. She currently co-hosts the Little Red podcast, which actually, might, as you might guess, is a podcast about China, an award-winning podcast about China, in fact. And she also teaches journalism at the University of Melbourne. Somehow, uh, despite all of that other stuff, she has found time to write a book or another book because, as I'm sure many of you will have read, The People's Republic of Amnesia, um, her first book uh, was shortlisted for many prizes, including the Orwell Prize for Political Writing. Her latest book is a subject close to many of our hearts, particularly at the moment. It's a, it's a history of Hong Kong from the perspective of locals. It's called Indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong. It's deeply researched and very personal. It's just been published by Penguin Random House, and it casts startling new light on the city's origins of a place of refuge and rebellion. I won't give away too much more. I will hand you over to our moderator for the evening, uh, FCC correspondent member governor Austin Ramsey of the New York Times, just before I do, though, I'd like to remind you, if you have any questions, please send them to question at fcchk.org. That's question, singular, at, H, uh, at fcchk.org. Um, and we will endeavor to field your questions to Louisa. But for now, over to you, Austin. Thanks, Rebecca. And thank you, Louisa, for, for joining us tonight. Um, we're here in the Foreign Correspondents Club in Hong Kong. It's uh, World Press Freedom Day. It's, uh, you know, in some ways a sad day. We, we, we learned that uh, Hong Kong's rank in terms of uh, press freedom uh, plunged, according to Reporters Without Borders, uh, 68 places to 148th place, uh, now below uh, uh, Cambodia and uh, a lot of places uh, which, you know, traditionally have had uh, uh, very difficult environments for uh, press freedom. Uh, today is also a, a, a day that we normally hand out the uh, Human Rights Press Awards. Um, the uh, FCC suspended those uh, this year. Um, we did have some good news. We learned that um, the that, uh, Arizona State, uh, the journalism program there, will pick those awards up and continue them on. Uh, Louisa, we were talking earlier, and you mentioned that you are a, a winner of the uh, Human Rights Press Award in the, in the past. So I was wondering if maybe I could just start and ask you about what your what your thoughts are today. Oh, thanks, Austin. And thank you um, for hosting me. Um, I am a winner of those awards. As you can see, actually, they're up on the shelf behind me. And I didn't even put them up, especially for this. <laughs> they're actually always there because I do feel really strongly about these awards. I think for me, they were the earliest awards. I got two up there. They were the earliest awards that I won um, on my own back as a correspondent and they were covering really hard stories uh in tibetan areas in china 
And I just remember the sense of being recognized, that my work was being recognized and noticed. And I really value those awards. Um, and I did think about canceling this event in protest, the decision to suspend the Human Rights Press Awards, but I decided it would be better to have it in the interests of sort of open discussion and transparency. But I, you know, I think it's a really sad day. It, suspending the awards does feel like an abandonment of journalists um, at a time and journalism and press freedom at a time when it's more important than ever before. And especially for our colleagues who have lost jobs like those at Stan News. Um, in my book, I do write about the hollowing out of Hong Kong's institutions. And this feels like a hollowing out of the core mission of the Foreign Correspondents Club. Um, so I think it is a really, I understand it's a really hard decision, but I think it's a really sad day for the club itself. Yeah, I, um, you know, I can't speak on behalf of the board or the club, but I am a, um, a board member, at least for the next few weeks. And sort of just briefly offer my thoughts. I, I agree with you. I think it is, is a sad day. Um, um, and reflective of the, the really difficult environment, uh, the press freedom environment in Hong Kong. Um, uh, Keith Richburg, the, uh, the, the board president, uh, has, a, has a letter on the site today about um, uh, Press Freedom Day and the awards. Um, and he writes that he, he thinks the club can continue um, speaking um, out on press matters of press freedom. Um, I encourage people to, to check that out. Um, you know, I, I think the, the club is in a difficult position um, because of the environment in Hong Kong, um, because of its sort of split role as, as both a press club and a social club that has restaurants and bars and thousands of members and more than 100 employees. And, uh, you know, I th I, it's going to be tough going forward. Um, I think the good, good thing, uh, potentially good thing, is that, you know, this is all under discussion in the club now. Um, the club is having its uh, annual general meeting later this month. And I think uh, subjects, um, these sort of subjects will be under a lot of discussion. So um, I, I encourage members to attend that um, and have all your questions answered and, you know, speak your mind. Um, so yeah, so so moving on. Uh, congratulations on the book; it's great um, and a great follow-up to your to your previous book. Um, maybe if I could just start by asking about the King of Cal. Well, let me before I get to the King of Kowloon. That was the first thing on my mind. But let me ask the very first question: How did you decide to write this book, um, and what were you hoping to achieve with it? Well, I I I mean, you know, I grew up in Hong Kong, and I was always interested in writing a book on Hong Kong. I had an idea and I was working on it. And actually, yeah, weirdly, the FCC did play a part in how the book um, developed because I had written a memoir piece that was published in an anthology of Hong Kong writers by Penn Hong Kong. And the launch event was actually held at the FCC. It was meant to be, it was in 2017. It was meant to be at the Asia Society. But the Asia Society wouldn't allow Joshua Wong, who was in the anthology, to speak there. So they moved it to the FCC, which then was a place that welcomed uh, sort of dissent, uh, you know, anybody to speak. And um, we, we held the launch event there and there were maybe eight or nine 
authors on the stage, including um, some fantastic Hong Kong poets like Nicholas Wong and Marco Yen. Um, Joshua Wong didn't make it. He was uh, occupying the Golden Bauhinium and was being arrested, so he didn't make it. But at a certain point in the Q&A, I remember someone in the audience asked the question, if I was to read one book about Hong Kong, what should I read? And we all sat on stage, all eight or nine of us, we all looked at each other. There was just this horrible silence. Um, no one could, I don't know why, no one could think of any book when put on the spot. And eventually someone said, maybe Timothy Moe's Insular Possession, which was written in 1986, so a long time ago. And I just remember at that point thinking, why, why aren't there are a hundred books about Hong Kong that are immediately springing to people's mind. Why, how is it, how can it be possible that it's so hard to think of a Hong Kong book? And we were all guilty, none of us could think of one. Um, so I decided that I wanted to write a Hong Kong book. I don't think it's the Hong Kong book and I don't think any one book can be the book about such a sort of diverse and complicated place. I think there's, you know, recently we've seen a lot of really good Hong Kong books come out, like Karen Jung's beautiful memoir, um, The Impossible, Impossible City. Um, but yeah, after that, you know, I started thinking about how to write a Hong Kong book. And I think that was something that kind of drove the way that the book developed. It's great. Well, yeah, it feels like now it could be a time for, you know, a hundred Hong Kong books to flower, you know, a, a great, a great moment for Hong Kong. Maybe that's not the right metaphor. Um, a, a good time for, for Hong Kong books. Uh, uh, Fortunate metaphor, I think. <laughs> um, all right. Well, let me, let me move to the, the, uh, the question I previewed. Uh, the, the King of Kowloon is, it has a big role in your book. Um, could you, you know, I think most people listening to this probably have some sense of who he is, but could you, for those who don't, Tell us a little bit about who he is and why you were interested in him, why you chose to make him a, a key figure in your book. So um, the King of Kowloon was really a feature of Hong Kong streets when I was growing up in Hong, in Hong Kong. He was like, you know, a feature of the city. And he was this elderly, um, sort of almost toothless, quite stinky trash collector who didn't wash very much. Um, who was very famous. He believed that the peninsula of Kowloon had been stolen from his family when it was given to the British in 1860. And he had this sort of obsession about the land. And he spent, you know, decades, almost half a century, um, writing his claims to the land over not just Kowloon, Hong Kong and Kowloon and all over the place. But, you know, it was very interesting. The writing he did was very contextual. He only ever wrote on crown land or government land. So it was, you know, the flyovers, the post boxes, the, uh, the um, you know, the electricity boxes, all these bits of street furniture that you wouldn't normally notice. And he, um, you know, in 1997, actually, I've got a picture that I can show, which is in the in my book here. And, I'm, most of you will recognize the, um, the writing, if not the man himself. Um, and, you know, he, he would paint on the same sites over and over again. So the government cleaners would come and clean them away or paint over them. And he would return to the same sites. And then in 1997, he was given 
an art exhibition by Lao Kin Wai. And um, after that, he became, you know, more of an artist. His work toured. He was in exhibitions um, at Han Art. Uh, eventually, he represented Hong Kong in the Venice Biennale. Um, and, you know, he became this real icon, you know. He was in a lot of local films playing cameo roles. He, he Singers sang songs to him, poets wrote odes to him. He was in adverts for um, a cleaning product called Swipe, a really famous advert. Uh, weirdly, Louis Vuitton, <laughs> he was in an, ad, an advert for that. And, you know, he kind of became a commodity. His work was on haute couture fashion and duvet covers and you know, underwear and everywhere. And I was just really fascinated in him. I mean, I think there were several levels. One of it was personal. His work really spoke to me. It reminded me of, you know, that time when I was a child in Hong Kong. But also, you know, there was another political side to his work that I just found really interesting that in his lifetime, and particularly early on, people had thought he was completely crazy. And even at the time when he died, no one was really interested in the sort of content or the political message of his work. But actually, he was talking about these Hong Kong uh, preoccupations long before other people were, you know, territory, sovereignty, dispossession and loss. And, you know, if you look back now at what he did, you know, some people, people who were sort of writing about him early on, you know, they call him a prophet, a seer, a shaman. I mean, I don't know that he was, but I just think in a way he gave us he gave Hong Kongers a way to think about these issues because he was doing it way before anybody else was. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, um, a month ago, uh, a King of Kowloon work sort of reappeared on, on Boundary Street. Um, and it was, it was interesting to see the reaction. I mean, I, I remember his, his work from when I first lived in Hong Kong in the early 2000s. And um, even before I knew who he was, he, he was sort of part the this very distinct style of writing uh, was really just part of the, the landscape and would appear, you know, and so, you know, so many places, I remember being on, on the electrical boxes that sort of like controlled the lights and stuff like that. And, you know, I think I saw it for a long time before I sort of understood who he was and what he was. I, I, I wonder though, you know, like if you followed the, this, this reappearance of a, of a work of his and, and the and the reaction and what you make of that how, how do you think he's sort of seen in, in Hong Kong today and what sort of relevance does he have in Hong Kong today I mean I think many people of a certain age he kind of talks to people in a way because he was such a fixture of the landscape and you know I know that piece of work that's reappeared since it's reappeared. You know, everyone keeps telling me that they, you know, people keep telling, sending me pictures of loads of people taking pictures of it. It seems there's like a constant crowd of people around it taking pictures of it. So I think there's something in his work which is um, quite symbolic. Um, and, you know, I, I this was actually the question that I kept asking all, all my interviewees. Um, why? Because, you know, it's not, I was quite obsessed with him, but then I found this whole sort of subsection of people who had written about him and knew him and had interviewed him or painted with him or whatever. 
And, you know, I kept asking the same question and, you know, I was quite struck by the sort of personal nature of the answers. People would say things like, uh, he's part of all Hong Kong people. Uh, and I think there's something to do with the idea of collective memory, that he really represents the sort of collective memory of Hong Kongers. I mean, you know, when he died, there was just newspaper coverage everywhere. Um, it was across the political spectrum, even the Wenwei Po was carrying coverage of him. Um, and, you know, so I think that he had become this figure that in a way really symbolized um, something in the Hong Kong mindset, both um, this sort of defiant streak, uh, but also this free thinking streak. Um, the journalist Feng Man Yi described him as the last free man in Hong Kong. Um, and I think that's quite a beautiful description as well. So I think there's something in his sort of rebellious, defiant streak that really speaks to Hong Kongers. And I think the um, re-emergence of his work is really interesting. I think there will be more work re-emerging. I think it's all part of a um, a, a campaign. <laughs> interesting, interesting. Well, one of the things that uh, comes clear through your book is just how, um, you know, his his sort of unique, mindset and in particularly in the sense that he he seems to not really care at all what anyone thinks about him or what he does um that you know he's he's arrested repeatedly um you know people uh you know criticize his calligraphy or, or say it's not even calligraphy that you know it's just scrawl and it, um so many things but and yet he's you know has this incredible focus on on doing this um for, you know, for, for decades. Um, and it made me think about like Hong Kong today. I mean, what, what do you think a, a figure like King of Kowloon, what would he, what would happen to him if he were, if he were trying to do that on the streets of Hong Kong today? Oh, I think it would be really different. Um, I mean, you know, he was, I think he was, I mean, he was fined quite a lot and police, officers used to come and try and stop him from writing and he would sort of fly into a rage and shout abuse at them but you know there were stories in the Chinese press saying that in the last um, few years of colonial Hong Kong that the police had actually um, had this sort of unspoken agreement that they wouldn't arrest him I could never confirm whether that was true or not but it was certainly written about but I mean that kind of graffiti now would be a very different proposition. And even in 2019, um, there was someone who wrote political graffiti on a street sign near a sub, an MTR station. And they, uh, I think they were arrested. Their house was raided. I seem to remember their father was arrested at a certain point as well. I mean, you know, the... And one of the reasons was that it was on public property. And another reason was because it was a political slogan. And that was even before the passage of the national security legislation. I don't know uh, what, how someone like the King of Kowloon would be dealt with now, but you know, at a time when we are seeing speech crimes that never existed before in Hong Kong existing. And, you know, I think a third of those people that have been arrested under the national security legislation have been arrested for, for speech crimes. Um, 
you know, it, it, I, I don't think there would be much tolerance for a character like him anymore, for sure. Yeah, well, it's certainly, you know, graffiti of all types disappears pretty quickly and particularly anything with political content. So um, I don't I don't want to fill this all up with questions about King of Catalan, but could I just ask one last thing since we're here? Um, what I mean, and since you mentioned that, you know, the protests, um, I mean, one big um, feature of the protests was the way that the city was covered with graffiti and linen walls and, you know, all sorts of messages. Um, did you have a sense that there, there was this, an interplay or between the King of Kowloon and what people were doing um, both in 2014 during the umbrella movement and, and the protests that started in 2019, if, if he inspired people or he affected how people saw the, the landscape of the city? I don't, I mean, I don't necessarily think they, um, people were consciously thinking about the King of Kowloon in any way. Um, you know, many of the protesters, I think, both in 2014 and 2019 would, you know, he died, they were born, um, you know, it, some of them would have been born after he died, probably. Um, so I don't, um, necessarily think that he was a direct influence. Although I do remember there was some graffiti, there were some illustrations in 2014 when the first Lenin War was shut down. There were some illustrations that, um, a cartoon that included him. So I think at that time, maybe some older uh, sort of political satirists were thinking about his role. But I think... Um, you know, I couldn't help thinking about him and particularly after it moved away from Lenin walls and to sort of actual sort of spray painted graffiti uh, on the walls of, you know, the legislative chamber on July the 1st in 2019 and, you know, and later on in the streets. I mean, he really was uh, the first person to write political graffiti in Hong Kong. Um, you know, he was... Uh, one of the world's earliest street, you know, famous street artists, you know, before Banksy, before Keith Haring. But, you know, the fact was that his was very political content. So I think, you know, maybe there was some sort of unconscious drawing on, on, on what he'd done, but I don't, I don't think it was necessarily a conscious thing. Um, moving, moving on to, to, you know, the, the book is quite personal and um, you, you, you sort of write from the beginning about, uh, you know, you're thinking about your role as a journalist um, and in uh, sort of changing your role as a journalist or as a as sort of participant in, in the book. Um, so, I, so I wonder, you know, how, how, the, how the, you know, how you think now about um, yourself and, and your role um and you know what it's like you know to be a journalist if if you feel that uh you know you've somehow gone beyond the sort of uh become sort of more of a participant in, in the story yeah i mean I, I think many of us many journalists kind of struggled 
with how to write about the protests in 2019, particularly when they first started. Um, you know, I think there was uh, a tension between being a Hong Konger and that kind of traditional role of being a very stand back, neutral observer in, in what was happening on the streets. And as time went on, I began to feel quite um, dissatisfied, to be honest, with the way that the protests were being reported. You know, particularly in the local media, I would be there on the streets watching. And then, you know, the next day you would read the reports and they would very heavily, you know, quote a lot of government officials using words like rioters, uh, not mentioning any police brutality, um, not mentioning sort of all kinds of things. And you would also see that kind of um, tension in the work that our you know, other journalists were doing in the difference between what they're posting on their Twitter feeds and the stories written under their bylines, particularly if they're working for local media, you know, local newsrooms. And I, I know that other journalists, you know, it's incredibly hard if you, you know, you have to earn a living and working in a Hong Kong environment, you know, maybe there are demands placed on your newsrooms, but I was not in that position. I wasn't beholden to anybody. And I just decided that I didn't want to write that kind of journalism. You know, I felt that this sort of slavish devotion to even handedness, to always quoting the government and the police was coming at the expense of fairness and accuracy. You know, nowadays it will kind of be akin to every time you write a story about Ukraine, quoting a Russian official in that story, every single story, every time. And I didn't want to do that because I didn't think that it was necessarily accurate or fair. So I decided to write as transparently as I could, you know, um, and that's what I did. You, you also talk about your, your time sort of when you first started out as a journalist um, and you were covering the, the handover and, and that experience. And I, I wonder what it was like for you to sort of go back and sort of revisit that event and think about, you know, how, how you thought about it then, how you thought about it in hindsight, what it was like to sort of think through your previous work like that and, and, and the experience itself like that. Yeah, it was definitely interesting um, to go back and, you know, I did not feel like any of my work in any newsroom in Hong Kong covered me with glory in any way. <laughs> I mean, also, you know, it is the nature of news, right? You're doing very short, you know, one minute, 30 pieces. How much can you fit into that? Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know that we, um, I you know, I think, we were often so caught up with the what's happening at this moment that we never really thought about the bigger story. In particular, you know, the story that we covered was the withdrawal of the British. It was not the return to Chinese sovereignty um, in any way. And I don't think we adequately thought about what that meant or prepared for it in any way. You know, we had minute by minute rundowns 
of the, the British withdrawal and, you know, where Patton would be at every, any point in time where his daughters were, this kind of thing. But when it came to July the 1st, you know, no one knew what was happening. You know, I remember going into the newsroom and no one had any clue what was going on. You know, no one was on duty because everyone was so tired after all the rolling news coverage. And I just don't think we ever really thought about what happens next. And I think that mindset um, was really problematic. Yeah. In a way, in, in many ways, that's when the, the story sort of starts. Um, but another um, sort of very personal aspect you brought in was... Um, your mother and her own research and the experience of being dragged to all these temples and sites around Hong Kong as a child and maybe not fully appreciating at the time what she was doing or wishing you were somewhere else. Um, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about you know, what she researched and, and how it, it came to affect your thinking and writing of this book? Yeah, absolutely. So my mother, um, Patricia Lim, um, she... Uh, was actually a Latin teacher <laughs> and in her spare time actually after she retired she started writing these cultural heritage guidebooks to Hong Kong and really the only reason that she did was because she wanted this kind of guidebook and she couldn't find one anywhere and eventually she said oh well I'll just write, write one myself and so um, you know as a child I had spent all of my weekends being dragged to look at these sort of uh, study halls and really te dusty temples and walled villages and sort of sacred trees somewhere in the new territories. And, you know, all I wanted to be doing was like sunbathing and shopping and, you know, going on junks and doing fun things. And it was sort of desperately unglamorous and quite boring and quite hard work, sort of, you know, trekking out in the new territories past all these dogs and, you know. Um, and I didn't really appreciate it at all at the time. Um, but I think what she did instill in me was this idea of a sort of, you know, this pre-existing heritage and how important that was. There was not a colonial heritage. And um, then she moved on to the graveyard in Happy Valley. And if there's any um, graveyard enthusiasts, she's written a very long <laughs> book, which is uh, 600 pages long and sort of extraordinarily detailed. But it's, um, she was originally only going to write a little pamphlet about the graveyard, just saying where the interesting graves were. But it actually took her 10 years. And she went back and found all the letters and the diaries of people buried in the graves and ended up writing this sort of um, it's like a history of early colonial settlement, but it's told through those people buried in the cemetery. So it's not a, it's a social history, but not told through the elite, through the kind of soldiers and the shopkeepers and the sex workers and the people who um, are buried there. And again, um, it's, you know, I think she was quite, um, she is quite interested in kind of looking at, at the history parts of Hong Kong history that other people at the time were also getting interested in, but, you know, there wasn't a lot of work on them at the time. And I think um, all of that fed into my book in, in really real ways as well. I mean, she gave me her entire library, which is a lot of extremely heavy books, um, a sort of early colonial history books. And, you know, I... I read all of them and, you know, we talked a lot about them. And I think that was really important in sort of 
helping me think through, you know, it really, I had this foundation that I didn't really know was there until I started um, writing. You also, um, you know, you talk about your father who, who worked in the colonial administration and, and other family members and ancestors who had, had roles in Hong Kong, um, Hong Kong's development and history at various points. What was, what was that like? What was it learning about, you know, what, what your family did here? Oh, it was a really interesting process. Um, I hadn't really ever known exactly what they had done, you know, um, and there were sort of ancestors and quite distant relatives who had played sort of quite, you know, small supporting roles in Hong Kong's history along the way. And it was sort of quite shocking to find out exactly what they'd done. You know, one example is the governor, Francis Henry May, who's known as Henry May. And, you know, I'd always known that he was related to me. And, you know, I used to boast about it when I was in school in Hong Kong, you know, because we were, our school was near May Road, which was named after him. And I didn't realize that he's sort of popularly known as one of the most racist governors that Hong Kong has ever had. You know, he had a pony called Yellow Skin. He was the one who put through legislation that banned uh, non-white people, non-Europeans from living on the peak. He actually didn't even want mixed race children like me to go to uh, schools where European children went. And, you know, he wrote in his notes, in his letters about Chinese as a semi-civilized race. And it was quite shocking that, you know, I, you know, I always knew that governors had, you know, discriminated a lot, put through all this very discriminatory legislation against Chinese people. But to find out that one of your own relatives had sort of really hit closer to home than one would want. <laughs> wow. And so you, so you learned this as you were reporting the book? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, maybe there were members of my family who knew, but I guess it's not something that you would want to talk about that much. <laughs> oh, wow. That's amazing. Um, one, one other really fascinating part of the book was um, your work with um, the interviews that Steve, Steve Zong did um, with officials and advisors at the time of the handover. Um, interviews that they sort of gave knowing that they wouldn't be public for a long time after um you know what did what did you learn in there and, what, and what, how did how did you see that sort of fitting in thematically with the book yeah it was a really interesting um discovery that i just kind of chanced across you know i was reading steve's book that my mother had given to me it was a really old dusty copy and buried in the footnotes he said uh, I'd really like to thank all those people who spoke to me, even though their words couldn't be used at this point in time. Um, they really informed my thinking. And so I went back and I was like, and he did mention the Hong Kong Transition Project. So I started to look for what this was. And I found that there were all these um, interviews being held in a library, in the Western Library in Oxford. And some of them had been placed on the shelves. And you could only read them in the reading room in Oxford. This was pre-COVID. So I kept having to go to Oxford to read the interviews. And there were a lot of interviews and some of them were very, very long. And then I, I went on a couple of trips and then I went to see Steve and I showed him the list of interviews that had been released. And he said, oh, that's really funny. I'm sure that I interviewed other people too, whose names aren't on that list. 
So I went back to the library and they discovered all these other interviews that they hadn't put on the shelves. And um, actually, some of that was too late for my reporting. But there's there's a lot of incredible archival material there that has not been well used that I think really puts a different light on um, Hong Kong's own history. And I think for me, the important thing was restoring Hong Kong voices to that period of Hong Kong history. And I mean, actually, there are a lot of interviews, both with uh, senior civil servants, colonial ones, with governors. But the ones that I was interested in were the unofficial. So UMELCO, the unofficial advisors to the, the executive council and to LegCo as appointed by the governor. And the period that I was interested in was 1982 to 1984, when the joint declara declaration was being negotiated. And the interviews were really frank. Um, they were interviews with people like S.Y. Chung and Lee Fuquo and um, Roger Lobo. So they were sort of industrialists and lawyers and bankers who were supposed to advise the British, um, but who ended up being extremely dissatisfied with the way the British had conducted the negotiations and the joint declaration itself but had been really used by the British to sell the joint declaration to Hong Kongers. Um, you know, the British feared that if, um, you know, there could be an exodus, Hong Kong, you know, confidence in Hong Kong could collapse. And they needed the unofficials to really kind of show continuing confidence in Hong Kong and in this agreement and really talk it up. But privately, the unofficials were extremely unhappy. They, you know, at a certain point, S.Y. Chung said, I didn't like the agreement. No one did. Um, they felt that the British had not negotiated hard enough. They felt the British didn't understand how to negotiate with the Chinese. Um, there were no native Chinese speakers on the British team. So they felt sometimes they missed the language. They felt they didn't understand negotiation with the Chinese. At one point, S.Y. Chung said, if I was in London and I was in Harrods, I wouldn't, I couldn't bargain. But with Chinese, the process of shopping is completely different. You know, the uh, the agreement, you know, that is just the beginning of negotiations, not the end. Um, and they were very dissatisfied with the lack of safeguards or any monitoring mechanism for the joint declaration. And they really had lobbied hard for that. So. For me, um, it was more a question of sort of restoring that Hong Kong voice to history. Um, and, I, you know, I think there's a, a great deal of scope for a lot of other work on it. There's an awful lot of archival material there. Steve did an incredible job. Um, and, you know, I just felt that Throughout Hong Kong's history, the voice of Hong Kongers just hasn't been present at all. Um, when I started working on this project, I actually went to see a friend of my mother's, a historian called Tim Ko, and he said to me, you know, in Hong Kong's history, there are no Chinese faces, no Chinese voices. And, you know, in colonial history, that was certainly true. The history books are just laundry lists of governors and what they did. And so I wanted to try and reinsert those voices. Um, but I think there's a, a great deal of work still that can be done on that archive that would be really interesting. 
Um, and there's, you know, all kinds of, um, you know, all kinds of interesting tidbits that are in those interviews that I hadn't known. You know, S.Y. Chung himself was had a death threat after he came back from Beijing and he was really anxious about it. He he thought that the death threat was designed to muzzle him, to stop him from speaking on behalf of Hong Kongers. And he believed that it had come from China somewhere. Um, but, you know, he couldn't publicly say anything. And none of the things that they spoke about to S Steve Chung were things that they could publicly talk about publicly because they'd of course signed the official secrets act mm. so i just found all of those interviews to be fascinating yeah yeah that, yeah that, that part was very interesting um you you also spoke with uh chris Patton, the, the last colonial governor um you know who's an incredibly savvy politician but you you sort of got a got him to sort of there was a there was a, a moment of, of felt like real honesty in that interview. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I was, um, so I did ask him about the unofficials and about that whole period in history. I was really interested in his view on that because of course he's the one person or one of the few people who would have read all the papers before he went out to Hong Kong in his briefing period. So he would have known about, you know, all the difficulties and problems that they had raised and their dissatisfactions they had had. So I did ask him, I asked him whether it would have made any difference if they had been listened to. Um, and he, to my surprise, said, I think it might have, but he didn't really expand on how. Um, so I thought that was very interesting. Um, and then there was this moment in our interview when I showed him some graffiti that I saw on the wall. I think it was on um, National Day in 2019. And it was graffiti um, of the speech that he gave on the night of Hong Kong's return to Chinese sovereignty when he said, um, I'm trying to remember the exact words. Um, so, yeah, I can just... He said, uh, so the graffiti, which was his speech, said, now Hong Kong people are to run Hong Kong. That is the promise, and that is the unshakable destiny. And I showed him this piece of graffiti, and I said, how does that make you feel? And it was the one moment that I felt was a really honest moment because he just kind of stopped talking because until that moment, he was so polished and s such a politician still. And he just kind of bowed his head right down to the desk. So it was almost touching the table. And he just went bad, 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 like this. And I thought he was, I almost thought he was going to cry. It was a really, um, it was, yeah, it was just, I felt like it was a really honest moment. So I wrote about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it does seem with like, you know, the discussion of the unofficials and the sort of history that hasn't really come out um, in your earlier book on, on Tiananmen, that, that there's this underlying theme of, of, of things that the powers that be don't really want the, the public to know. 
Um, I mean, do you see that as sort of your, your mission then going into these books to, to find those, those truths? <laughs> Not really. Um, in each case, I just, I guess I almost stumbled across things in, in the course of my reporting that have not been reported before. Um, I, you know, I, I guess it would be very neat and easy to say, yes, that's my mission. And I go into it with <laughs> ideas. That's really not true. I, I just, I guess I just, I'm always looking in the places where people are not looking. Um, I'm never really that interested in writing the kind of stories that, everybody else writes and I guess maybe that's why I stumble across you know often I'll like follow a thread and keep following it until it leads me to something and it could take a really really long time I mean each of these books uh this book was eight eight years in the in in the writing um and you know I never feel like they're really finished there's always so much there's so much more that I did not write about. There were so many other interviews that I didn't manage to get to, especially in the archive. So, yeah, I guess um, it would be nice if that was my mission, but I guess it's almost like an accidental kind of uh, outcome. Um, and maybe I end up, yeah, writing about things that haven't been written about before just because... Um, not necessarily looking in the obvious places uh, for stories. Well, it's a, it's a great outcome. Um, so we're in the last 15 minutes of the hour um, when we go to questions from the audience. So uh, I have a question here from uh, Shibani Matani. A, uh, she's a Washington Post correspondent here in Hong Kong. Um, she writes... Um, Given you write so much about self-censorship and the disappearance of civil society in Hong Kong, do you see the FCC's decision to cancel the human rights press awards and also to hold off on statements on journalists' arrests as part of this broader remaking of all institutions in Hong Kong, including the media? And then a, a follow-up, do you think these, these institutions risk being complicit in normalizing a, a declining situation in Hong Kong? Yeah, those are really tough questions. And I will say something, and then maybe you have something to say as well, Austin, <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a board member. But I do think, um, I, I do think not, uh, it, it's such an important role that a press, uh, you know, an organization that is supposed to be fighting for press freedom can play in issuing statements when its members have trouble and that that's not a small thing it's a really important role because it's also um alerting you know foreign governments to what is happening in hong kong and i think for journalists themselves it's such an important role it's such an important thing to feel that there is someone who is watching when things go wrong so i do think any, any decision to hold back on statements is an act of self-censorship and in an organization that is supposedly um, has, you know, press freedom as its core mission, that, you know, it is a hollowing out of the mission. Um, and yeah, it's, um, I, as I said, I, I have written about how sort of institutions are being hollowed out. So they look like they're, you know, they look, 
everything looks the same on the surface, but, you know, are they actually performing the functions they're supposed to be performing? I think, you know, the FCC needs to really think about what function that it has if it's not, uh, you know, advocating for press freedom and supporting its members vocally and openly. Um, Austin, maybe you've got something to say about this as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let me, oh, uh, first, let me just um, say if anybody has a question to please uh, send it to us at question at FCCHK.org. Yeah. I mean, you know, in, in, in reading a book, I was, I, I was really reminded of that. There was, there was a part where you describe um, going to, I think it was a court of final appeal for a decision on something. And um, you, you've, and, and this is, is part of your sort of examination of your role as a, as a journalist. And you, the line was something like um, Hong Kong's institutions were being hollowed out and, and um, my own role in it nauseated me, but, this, but it's also hard to know what to do. <laughs> um, yeah, that was a line that, that did resonate with me. Um, yeah, it's, 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 a very, it's a very difficult situation um you know um i think you know you and i were both in beijing at a similar time i um i imagine we're probably also a member of the foreign correspondence club of china as well um which is a you know it's a very different organization it's um it's just made up of journalists it's just focused on journalist interests um the fcc here you know it's um it has that press club role um, but it also has a social club with many other things going on and, 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 you know, employees, people, people to worry about. Um, and it's, uh, I think it does sort of make that, that sort of pure press club role difficult. I mean, it, you know, it's hard enough for the FCC China, um, with their sort of, um, you know, very small profile, you know, I don't. I think when I was there, I think they had one part-time person or something like that, and even then, they're regularly denounced by the foreign ministry as an, an illegal organization, and you know, it's it's tough for them. And you know, Hong Kong is becoming a lot more like you know, like like the mainland environment. So it you know, it's it's tough. Um, I I don't know the answer. I I feel like. Um, it's going to be hard for the FCC going for FCC Hong Kong going forward to speak on press freedom rules um, uh, on, pre on issues of press freedom. Um, but what do you do? Do you, do you, you know, um, do you try and muddle through, speak on some things, not on others? Do you um, throw up a white flag and not speak on anything? Um, it's all, it's all pretty fraught. Um, I mean, I, I, I guess the, the best thing is that these issues are being discussed now and, and the, uh, what's happening with the club, um, you know, is, is a matter of pretty intense debate. So I, I hope through that um, we reach a consensus and have, have some thought about what to do in the future, but it's not easy. All right, um, more questions for you. Uh, let's see, where... Uh, where does uh, where does where does one find your book in Hong Kong? I went I went, uh, <laughs> I went to uh, to S Light 
And they told me they didn't, I, I did get a copy on Kindle, but I wanted to get a print copy. They told me um, it was not available and they did not expect it to be. I, from my understanding, from what my publisher has told me, um, the main chains in Hong Kong are not stocking the book. My understanding is because it's because of this slogan um, <laughs> on the book that this is seen as problematic. So I would say probably your best bet for getting hold of the book in Hong Kong is to buy it on Kindle where, or as an audio book where it is available um, at the moment. But I don't see um, any, you know, I, I don't think that it's that likely that it's going to be stopped by major chains in Hong Kong. Um, it has just been acquired by a Taiwanese publisher, so it will be printed, uh, it will be translated and printed in Taiwan, which is really, um, really nice. I'm looking forward to that. Um, but yeah, it's a pity. I would, you know, really like it to be available in Hong Kong, but um, unfortunately not at the moment. Well, beyond that, you know, what, what's what's been the reception? Have you heard from readers in Hong Kong? And what, what do people think about it? Well, I mean, it's only just been published. I think it's been out for maybe 10 days in the U.S. and then um, published actually today elsewhere in the world. So, uh, uh, so far, the um, feedback has been quite good. But... Yeah, interestingly, I wrote a piece for the Financial Times at the weekend, uh, I think it came out on Saturday, um, about Hong Kong communities in exile and writing and researching Hong Kong from exile. And that piece had a really interest. had really, I, I just got an avalanche of feedback. Um, I just had a lot of um, messages from people I didn't know um, telling them, you know, made people cry at their desks at work. Um, you know, lots of people wrote to say how it had moved them. Uh, there was a reader in Sydney who said it made him weep like a baby and he was going to show it. He said he was a father of three and he was going to make sure that all three of his children read it. Um, yeah, I had a lot of response from that. And the other thing that really interested me was that the, uh, trolls on the Financial Times website were extremely active. They were all over it. There were a lot of comments from um, from trolls about it. So uh, it struck all kinds of chords that I hadn't <laughs> really expected. I didn't realize the FT's website had that many trolls. Um... Apparently they've got very, <laughs> um, no, very active Chinese trolls and also Russian trolls too. So literate trolls. <laughs> who can afford FT subscriptions, apparently. <laughs> well, uh, trolls aside, I mean, what do you make of that response from readers? Why, 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 I mean, aside from your wonderful writing, mm. why, why were they so moved? I mean, I think we are seeing these new communities of Hong Kongers in exile really coalescing in a way that they hadn't before. Um, you know, and I think part of it is also, some of it is because of the the protests, but also, you know, this big outflow now is because of the zero COVID policies. Um, I did read 150,000 people have left since the end of last year. Um, so there are these brand new communities, and I think there's this real um, 
sense of loss, you know, of uh, being discombobulated and, um, and in a new place and not knowing what comes next. Um, but also, and I, it might also come back to the point that Shibani Matani was making in her question. Um, when, you know, the, the, when there are these moments, and we particularly had, had it in Australia when they had a showing of QE Chow's Revolution of Our Times, uh, when the community comes together, I think it could be really uh, powerful and one of the things that I think was really obvious in that film was the way in which the national security legislation is really atomizing civil society. It's kind of designed to dissolve those bonds between Hong Kongers. Um, and, you know, even watching the film in the cinema, those were the moments that made people cry. Those were the moments that really moved people when they saw Hong Kong people putting their lives at risk for complete strangers, people they didn't know who were other Hong Kongers. And I think that's the sense of what is being lost, that sense of connection, that sense that there is, um, you know, the, 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 there were all these parts of society that will help other people even if they don't know them. And I think, you know, I, I guess it also comes back to the FCC's that's one of the reasons why I think the FCC's decisions to not speak about, uh, you know, Alan Au's arrest and things like that are so devastating in a way is because those bonds, you know, have been so strong in the past. Um, and to see them disappear, I think is really devastating. And I, I guess, just writing about it and thinking about it and articulating that sense of loss makes it very real and brings it out into the open. Well, Louisa, we're, we're coming up on the, uh, the end of the hour. Um, so I thank you very much for, for taking the time to speak with us and, and congratulations, uh, congratulations on your book. Um, again, it's uh, Indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong. Thank you for listening to this lunchtime talk from the Foreign Correspondents Club in Hong Kong. Don't forget that you can see the video of this and all of our other talks on our YouTube channel. Just search for FCCHK. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at FCCHK or on Instagram at FCCHKFCC. Thank you so much for listening. My name is Tyler Ravana. See you next time. <laughs>